Welcome to the Team Health podcast program, Beyond Clinical Medicine, what they don't teach you in residency. I'm Rob Strauss, Team Health's Chief Medical Training Officer, and this podcast is about moving forward after personal tragedy, restoring balance in a world that was turned upside down. I assume everyone listening remembers the Parkland School tragedy. There were 17 people who were killed, among them, Alyssa Alhadeth, a 14-year-old. Imagine the impossible that that is, being a surviving parent of one of these victims. Is it even possible to recover? Today, we have a most special guest, Alan Alhadeth, Alyssa's father. I know Alan because he's a hospitalist working for Team Health. He's been a clinician, a leader, a regional medical director, and a man with extraordinary emotional intelligence. Elon, welcome to this program, and thank you for your willingness to share this story. Thank you, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, thank you for this opportunity to uh, tell my story. So, Elon, what happened? Can you describe for people who are not familiar uh, what, what happened and how it rolled out? Yeah, so on February 14, 2018, that, that was Valentine's Day. That was the day that was supposed to be filled with love and dances and chocolate and just a lot of fun. And what it turned out to be one of the worst tragedies in America. My daughter, along with 17 others, were killed in their school uh, in one of the worst school shootings in America. So how did you find out that Alyssa was one of the victims? So I was at work uh, and I got a text from my wife and followed by about 100 phone calls from my wife while I was on a conference call saying that there was a school shooting uh, at my daughter's school. And I dropped everything. I, I raced there 100 miles an hour down the highway. I got there. And we couldn't get to the school. And so they eventually led us to a nearby hotel where it was a debriefing center. And people were trying to figure out who's alive and who's not. And they said they took victims to the hospitals. Well, I raced to the nearby hospitals where they said they were going. And I just came up empty. It took 12 hours until they finally told us that Alyssa was killed. And the method in which they told us was horrible. They said, they even asked to have my wife leave the room while they wanted to describe one of the most disgusting details and saying that my daughter was shot in the face and she was unrecognizable. And that turned out to not be true. And it was just, after being, it was just like someone stuck a knife into me and just kept turning it over and over again. To hear such gruesome things that turned out to not be true. But yes, she was one of the victims and she was shot over eight times. The inaccuracy, the gruesomeness of it, and just getting bad data slowly even made it worse. For sure. Sorry. 
I don't know how one addresses that. Um, can you describe your immediate aftermath the next few days getting up in the morning? What happened? After that happened, I felt like my life just came crashing down. It was really difficult. We had the funeral, and to be honest, I was shocked a few thousand people came up. We had a uh, shiva, and over 500 people came to my house each day. Various schools, people from various countries, various armed forces, strangers from all walks of life, they just showed up at our house. I was getting thousands of texts and emails sending condolences. There was tons of social media, town gatherings, newspapers, TV interviews. It just kept coming at us. And after the shiver, all of it just disappeared. And what we found is saying, how do we really pick up the pieces? This was probably the hardest thing. And one of the things that I like to think of is I'm a physician. I compartmentalize like the best of them. And that's what I had to do. I had to compartmentalize my feelings because I was focused on my wife and my children because I need them to, to be able to get up and be able to do things. And I really need to protect them. So I was in fight or flight mode. And what I just kept telling myself was there's really a time to cry and hide, but today was not that day. And I just kept pushing and pushing and really saying each day, I'm going to take it one day at a time. All I'm going to do is I'm going to get up. I'm going to focus on protecting my family. I'm going to go to bed and that's it. Next day I'll begin and I'll focus on that day. And what I kept trying to do was thinking about finding inspiration from all around me, how to really keep my head up there. And while it's kind of humorous, I, I was thinking about the different places that I found inspiration. And my kids put on uh, TV at one point, and they they were watching the movie Rocky Balboa. And there was a, a famous line from there that really resonated with me. And it goes like this. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place. and will beat you to your knees. And keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard life. But it ain't how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving. I'll tell you, I felt like I was knocked out. And I just had to get up. Had to get up because my family needs me. And that's all I kept thinking. So it was difficult. The one thing that really uh, pushed me and frustrated me at the same point was and everyone kept just saying hopes and prayers. Hopes hmm. and prayers was not going to bring my daughter back. And it was not going to make anything change. I understand the one thing that you're saying was that hopes and prayers sometimes can seem empty and just a rote phrase that people say because it's the common phrase and it it really doesn't necessarily 
mean anything. It's interesting that you describe it as putting a foot in front of the other. And I love the, um, I, I love the Rocky quote, you got hit impossibly hard and your family got hit impossibly hard. What about professionally? How did you, when did you go back to work? That was a difficult one. For me, the function, I need to work. I'm a person I can't sit home and I, I have to get out there and I have to work. And that was actually difficult. I was actually encouraged, take some more time. And I, I fought my way and said, no, I, I need to get back to work. <laughs> so I really started working more in my administrative role. It took me a long time till I wanted to take back doing clinical work because one, I'm a, I'm a physician leader. I train leaders, I develop leaders, I build programs, I repair programs, but I also see patients, I take care of patients. And I don't think I was in the frame of mind to be caring for patients. One of the things that I struggled with, to be honest, was empathy. Dealing with what I just had to deal with, I frankly, I didn't have empathy for anything else that was going on around me. So it took a long time to first go back into patient care. And, you know, oftentimes in the hospital, we'll see a lot of patients with minutia and stuff that really is non-emergent, non-urgent stuff. And there's a lot of different complaints that come about. And it was really hard for me to say, hey, listen, this is really a person that's dealing with various things. And, and instead, I became more robotic. I, I recognized I lacked empathy in what I was doing. And it was not until about a, a year or so later that it was brought to my attention by a patient's family member that at the time that they were struggling and I came in just to do one shift, just to help for one day that I didn't have the empathy towards that family member that I should have. Now, I did everything right by the patient, and I stand by and I reviewed it, and I did everything, but I lacked empathy. So in that case, I didn't do everything right by that patient because I didn't take care of that family. And it made me realize from that moment on that I needed to gain back that empathy. I need to reflect upon why I went into medicine, what I'm going to do, because unfortunately, tragedies and stuff happens. And how we respond to that to be able to function is really important. But I'll tell you, it wasn't easy. Even starting out in my administrative role is very difficult. I was a little bit on eggshells, and probably everyone around me was on eggshells. Some people wanted to come towards me and hug me, and others ran for me like I had the plague because they didn't know what to say. Didn't know what to do. So it was a difficult time even getting back into the workforce. So you talked earlier about what you have done, which is include repairing programs. And here you're in a situation where, in a sense, you had to repair yourself after a gaping wound. I can't imagine having 
empathizing with somebody with a minor complaint with that kind of what I assume would be your internal environment. Let's talk about what you just talked about, which is people coming towards you, clueless, or people not coming towards you, afraid to say anything. How does you deal with what I would call well-meaning but clueless people who said, Elon, I know what you're going through? So I think Teresa Tavanero says it well. It is the amygdala hijack. which is whereby they're hijacking my emotions and really derailing my ability to function and and really go about my day. And here's the thing I always say. I'm in a very small club and I don't want that club to ever grow. The club of shooting survivors and, and victims of tragedy, that club shouldn't grow. So when someone says, hey, listen, I know what you're going through. No, they don't. They don't have a clue. And oftentimes, they want to come from a good place. They're coming from a place that they mean well, they care about you. But oftentimes, they just want to relate in some way. So they're going to share their personal stories where it's of tragedy and loss and saying, I know how it feels. My aunt died of this or I recently lost someone. And when my family member passed away and, and at the end of the day, no one can relate to saying that their child was brutally shot while sitting in their school classroom. That is not something that's relatable. The ones that can relate are the ones that are grieving like me. Like I said, that club is really small and should stay small. Unfortunately, these days it is growing. So what I said is I have to realize that People are going to come to me all the time, and when they hear their story, they're going to try and relate. And that was incumbent upon me to say, how am I going to respond? Because those stimuli are not going away. I would say that when I tell people, you know, what are the things to say? You know, should I yell at them? Should I attack them? (laughs) Should I insult them? dismiss or even just ignore them. So there's different ways of looking at it. I think if my wife does it well in the sense of changing the subject, in my professional world, I could not do things that would take me to a place that I shouldn't be. I could not, I I needed to maintain relationships and need to also demonstrate that I could function. And so that was not very easy for me to do. So One of the strategies that I deployed was I just kind of looked at them, shook my head, and just tuned out until I I saw them finish speaking. But it was really important to understand that if I was going to thrive and survive, I need to figure out how I'm going to respond going forward because there's always going to be triggers. From loud noises to bangs to things falling to someone saying something inappropriate to me, there will always be a trigger. And so for me, it was important to, and I think Lenny Marcus, he always is a a good speaker, and he talks about getting your head out of the basement. I had to get my head out of the basement and how to respond and figure out how am I going to be successful. 
How am I not going to bite someone's head off? How am I going to say the right things? But if I were to tell someone what I found to be most impactful, I probably would say that it, it would be great to say, hey, listen, I cannot imagine what you might be going through, but I'm here to support you in any way that I can. We got you back. I'm here if you need something. And that would probably be the best thing to say because understanding is just people couldn't relate. They couldn't understand. And they shouldn't have to. And I shouldn't put that burden upon them either. But at the same time, I didn't want to be triggered. So understanding what to say, what not to say. To me, I found a lot of success and when I give talks on that. But at the same time, it was also I needed to change. I needed to understand what's going to happen and how I'm going to respond. So I remind myself of that every time that uh, a trigger happens. And I reflect upon that because, again, I'm, I'm in healthcare. I'm in a leadership position. I need to always be on my toes and always on my guard in a sense because it's going to come at me no matter whether I like it or not. Lana, I appreciate the wisdom that you're sharing and thank you for helping me to learn a way to respond when the impossible happens. So thank you. I appreciate that. You said you don't want the club to grow. And I know that you have said in the past that you have to be the change you want to see. Only I can see your background that uh, because we're on a Zoom call, which is a banner called Make Our Schools Safe. So more than waking up every day, you and Lori responded. The Make Our Schools Safe Foundation is a response to ongoing tragedies. Can you share with us a little bit about that? Sure, Rob. So Make Our Schools Safe we formed that as a way of being the change we want to see in the world. It's a nonprofit 501c3 foundation where the vision is to drive and guide best practices in school safety. Our mission is to empower students and staff to help create and maintain a culture of safety and vigilance in a secure school environment. Every dollar that we raise goes back into the foundation. We don't take salaries. And really what we're focusing on, we call it the triad model, which is prevention, mitigation, and then recovery. So when it comes to tragedies, we look at different types of prevention. How do we prevent school shootings? How do we prevent, how do we make school to be a safe place such that our children, our boys, and everyone else's kids can go there and the teachers can go there and not have to worry. So whether it relates to uh, school hardening techniques, uh, such as single point entry, specialized fencing, alarm systems, how to have different uh, wands uh, that are checking for weapons, preventing weapons from getting onto the campus, then from the mitigation efforts, one being, and I'm one I'm most proud of, which is Alyssa's Law, and I'll talk about that in a moment, uh, but Stop the Bleed Kits, uh, and then as it relates to recovery, uh, 
how to do, uh, you know, stop the bleed because it's a big part of that. But also, I, I talk about the penumbra a lot in tragedies, which is how to address. And we think about strokes. If you have a stroke, the penumbra are the parts of the brain that's truly impacted after the uh, the cells in the brain that died from the stroke. Well, the penumbra in a tragedy, such as a school shooting, is the entire community at large. And there's a significant amount of mental health issues that go on as a result of that. So that that community, the penumbra, really is impacted and how to provide resources to address that. And so our our uh, our foundation really works on that triad model and putting different resources into play in different ways. One of the things that I like to talk about a lot is Alyssa's law. So this is a law that was passed both in the Jersey and then in Florida. And what it does is it requires that all schools have silent panic alarms, such that in the case of any type of emergency, a, uh, a school shooting, a violence, a medical emergency, law enforcement, with a push of a button, law enforcement will be notified and arrive on the scene as quickly as possible. No more does it have to wait to call in a 911 switchboard, which takes time. And like in strokes and heart attacks, time can equal death or self. Well, in this case, uh, in a school shooting or in a tragedy, time can equal a child's life. So Alyssa's law has been passed. We're very uh, pleased with that. And we also have multiple states that have bills to have Alyssa's law passed in those states, as well as we have two bills in Congress right now for federal bills that we want to be passed and now really accomplish what we're trying to do, which is pass Alyssa's Law nationwide. And obviously, Alyssa's Law was named after my daughter. You must be very proud of that. But something else, I think, that one small aspect that has made a difference among all of the many aspects that have made a difference that you described for me related to this see something, say something, anonymous reporting. You told me a great story about that. Would you mind sharing that with the people listening? Yeah, I'd be happy to. One of the the prevention techniques that we're deploying is to notify uh, the appropriate, uh, not sure the proper word, the appropriate authorities before something happens. And in schools, kids always know when something's going to happen before it happens. If there's a fight going to happen on campus at 3 o'clock, all the kids know about it at 10 o'clock in the morning because they're all preparing for it. Similarly, if something's going to happen, whether it's, uh, unfortunately, school shooting, someone commits suicide, anything, people oftentimes know before it's going to happen. The hard part, and we deal with this in many organizations, is the ability to notify someone and report it without punishment. So what we've encouraged a lot of companies to do is create a anonymous reporting app where if you see something, you can say something and you won't be punished for saying something. The best example that I could provide happened recently. My wife doesn't like me telling this story because she doesn't want to get the credit. But it was not too long after the tragedy that one of the kids in the school was going to commit suicide. He was planning it. And his friend knew about it. His friend was scared to say something. So 
he, the friend notified my wife and my wife actually put it on the anonymous reporting app. Uh, we have an app down in South Florida um, that is for the entire state that gets utilized. And she reported it. And that child got immediately law enforcement, psychological counseling. All these resources were deployed to address. And my wife saved this child's life because he was likely going to go through with that plan in a real timely manner. So he had an opportunity to, you know, to benefit from someone saying something and noticing it. And to be honest, this is an opportunity for all of us to think about how we report things. And there's many apps out there, so I don't uh, say I favor one app over another, uh, depending on what your states may have, what individual schools or, or companies may utilize. But at the end of the day, we need to promote the ability for anonymous reporting. So that way we can truly create that safe environment. And, and Rob, if I could just go back, one of the things I didn't get to share with you was Alyssa's law in action. I don't remember if I got a chance to tell you this story, but it was this past September down in nearby Naples, Florida, where Alyssa's alert and Alyssa's law was actually just started in force. It was just after the Pledge of Allegiance. A 17-year-old girl suddenly collapsed in her classroom. The teacher reported that she turned four shades of gray and was dying right in front of her. With a push of a button, the Alyssa's alert, a teacher came running down the hallway with it uh, AED and shocked the child back to life. Mind you, it took 22 minutes for EMS to get there. If it was not for Alyssa's alert and that teacher coming with that AD, that child would be dead today. Alyssa's law, Alyssa's alert, saved that child's life. Now she was intubated, eventually extubated, made a full recovery. But to think about the secondary benefits of Alyssa's law, it's tremendous. And when I think about it, all governmental buildings actually have a panic button system. Jewelry stores and banks have a panic button system. I think about our children and our teachers and our hospitals. Are we any less? Why should we not have this? So Alyssa's alert and Alyssa's law is focusing on schools and our next rendition, we're going to be looking at hospitals. Because while they have code blues, there's nothing that geofences where the emergency is. And you have to call for an emergency in the hospital. Well, it would be better if you're able to push a button and they knew exactly where that emergency was. You've talked about make our schools safe and implementing programs and laws. Suppose somebody wants to hear more about this and maybe do some work on their own. How, who would they contact? How would they figure that out? Thank you, Rob. So I would encourage those to join the school safety movement and they can reach out to us. They could check out our website. It's www.makeourschoolsafe.org. Very easy. Get involved. We could start some school safety clubs. We could talk about different laws. There is a lot of fundraising activities, volunteer activities. Get involved. 
stay active together, we can make our schools safe. Elena, I thank you. You have described coming back from the unimaginable. And you and Lori and your family have done so much. You've created programs, Alyssa's Laws, a law, and uh, done a lot for communities. So what I see is that you are improving things for a lot of people and families and communities, one step, one person, one life at a time. Thank you, Ilana. Thank you very much. This has been a remarkably moving story. And again, Ilana, I want to thank you. I'm going to close here. If you have any questions about this topic, suggestions to me about other topics, please contact me at beyondclinicalmedicine.org. Thank you.